Over the last several weeks, we have been in this, this one series talking about how Jesus Christ has all authority over all things. And our focus this morning, as we come into our fifth week of this series, is God's authority over government. God's authority over government. And I believe that what God has to say about this topic is probably going to do two things. One, it's probably going to bring personal convictions into our own lives because Christians, including people here in this very room, can tend to err one way or another on this topic in our thinking. And it could bring some cultural challenges to us because what the Bible says about government is not what our culture says about government today. So we're going to deal with God's authority over this aspect of human existence, what he has to say to us, and what that means for us as we live in this world. Now, if you have tuned in to any of the kind of broader public conversations that have been taking place over the last two years, in the, in the broad Christian spectrum, very likely you have heard someone turn to a specific passage of Scripture and hold out these verses as kind of the trump card that's supposed to end all conversation about what we are supposed to be doing in terms of our relationship to government. And what I want us to do today is to go to this passage, to look at it, and to unpack it in light of a biblical theology, a robust biblical theology, meaning what does the whole of the Bible say about this topic, and how does that inform our interpretation of this text? We don't want to understand a text of Scripture superficially. We want to really know what is God saying? What does it mean for us? So if you have your Bible, turn to Romans chapter 13 this morning. Romans chapter 13. We're going to be in this text, and then we're going to be in several other texts, because we're going to build ourselves a, a biblical theology, hearing from the Word of God, Old Testament, New Testament, in many different places. But we need to start with this text, which is kind of, like I said, often that card that's thrown down to say, hey, this ends the discussion, just this one thing, you can't think anything else, you can't do anything else, here's all the answers you need. And it's a little more to it than that if we want to live as a faithful Christian, obeying the entirety of Scripture. But let me read these first few verses of Romans, chapter 13, verses 1 to 5 for you as we begin. Therefore, text starts in verse 1, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is, God's ser he is the servant of God, an avenger, who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience." In some cases, over these last two years, this has been the text that so many people have gone to. Shockingly, more people have gone to this text and explained it in this way from sources that should know better, quite honestly. And the text is read in an incredibly simplistic way and interpreted to simply mean this. Again, totally isolated from the rest of Scripture. You've probably heard this text read and then the, these words in some form. Just do whatever the government says to do. Always submit, trust, and obey or you're in sin. That's it. We've read five, five verses. Sometimes you don't even get that. That's it. That's your whole response. That's all you should do in response to government. Well, I would argue, and I will argue in this sermon today, that's a simplistic understanding, a bad understanding of this text and the application of this text. It comes from an underdeveloped biblical theology or just an outright disregard for what God says in the totality of his word. 
So this morning, I want us to think about this text primarily, but again, we're going to build this out from the rest of Scripture, all of what Scripture has to say to us in this way. And we're going to walk through several points. And unlike the last few weeks, I've given you the main point up front. Uh, This one we're going to build out, and I'll give you the main point in kind of a summation at the very end. So I'm going to encourage you to to take notes all throughout on these points, and then your summation will kind of make more sense as it's fleshed out through what we talk about along the way. Here's the first point, the first thing we need to recognize as we form a biblical theology of this. The sphere of governmental authority was created by God. So again, we're going back to to, to week one, right? We have talked about how God is the creator of all things that exist. Nothing exists apart from his will. This is true in terms of God's common grace to humanity, making these concepts of government and societal order exist among mankind. When I use that phrase, common grace, it's it's a specific phrase, it's a theological term. And what I don't mean is I'm not referring to God's saving grace, That means someone's delivered from their sins and changed and transformed into the image of Christ, removed from their rebellion, their personal cosmic trees and the consequences of that. Because that kind of grace, that saving grace, is not common to all men, right? We all know that not everyone experiences that grace. Many have understood and rejected the gospel. Others have never heard the gospel message. So not everyone experiences the saving grace of God as those of you and I who profess to be Christians have. But common grace is something that's just that. It's common to humanity. Common grace from God is his display of kindness, of mercy, benevolence upon the human race as a whole, upon both the sinner and the saved person alike. So very practical illustrations. God's common grace is why the sun shines and the rain falls on the fields of both the pagan and the Christian, right? God's common grace is why even a sinful atheist can see and appreciate the beauty of a sunset. That's God's common grace, to be able to appreciate those things. God's common grace is why medical and technological advances occur and why both God's people and people who reject God can go and have a surgery, can go take medicines, can enjoy air conditioning, can have refrigeration. All of those experiences of, of, that are shared kind of among humanity as a common thing, that's by God's common grace. He doesn't have to give us any of those great things. In fact, his justice would be perfectly fulfilled to to kill every sinner upon their first sin, right? It doesn't have to give us breath at all, but God's common grace does that. And I want us to understand this morning as this first point, it is God's common grace that gives mankind governmental authorities to serve and benefit mankind as a whole. So this is what Romans chapter 13 verse 1 is acknowledging for us, right? Let every person, the text says, be subject to the governing authorities for there is no authority except from God and those that exist have been instituted by God, right? This is his creation. This is his institution that he has established. So he reigns over it, as we said. If he creates it, he has the right to rule and reign over it. So it leads to our second point this morning. Second is this. Governmental authority is a delegated and limited sphere of authority. Again, the principles conveyed there in that first verse of Romans 13. God's the one who has created and instituted all authorities. And broadly teaching, we know that that is true. And what is also true is that there's only one supreme authority over all these other authorities that exist, right? So the authority of God himself is above all all other creation things that he has made. So Psalm 103 verse 19, for example, tells us, Yahweh has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over what? All. Not some things, not a few areas, all. 
First Chronicles 29.11 likewise says, Yours, O Yahweh, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. Note, note this. For all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Yahweh, and you are exalted as head above, what's the word? All. Right? So these verses and, and many others like them teach us very plainly God's rule is supreme. His authority is greater than all the other authorities that exist. No government, no armies, no rulers, no matter how powerful or impressive they may seem, are anything other than creatures created by God. And thus they are subject to his greater authority, to the greater kingdom, to the rule and reign of God himself. So with one authority that is ultimate, we must understand all other authorities, including every single government that exists, is only a delegated and limited authority. There is no king that is sovereign except God. In fact, God expresses his control over the kings of the earth by saying in Proverbs 21.1, which you again read this week if you're on the Bible reading plan, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of Yahweh. He turns it wherever he will. Which takes us then to our third point. All governments and governmental officials are established by God's hand. Since he is the one who has all authority, and since God is the one actively reigning over this world and all the affairs of this world, we can hear just two direct texts, I think, that will establish this point very clearly for us. The first is from the book of Daniel, Daniel chapter 2, verses 20 and 21. We read, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. This text is clear and goes on to continue to be clear as well. But God's work is what is being seen here. He's in control of all things. He's giving these things. He's establishing kings. He's removing kings. He's raising up new kings. This is the work of our God. And second are the words of Jesus to Pilate. And I want you to notice this affirms both this point that God establishes all lesser authorities and the previous point that all authorities are only delegated and limited authorities. In John chapter 19, verses 10 and 11, we read this. Pilate said to him, this is Jesus, will you not speak to me? Do you not know? I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you. And the words of our Lord are this. Jesus answered him, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Jesus makes it very, very clear, right? No authority exists outside of God granting that, delegating that authority to someone. Not even this powerful Roman official here, representing the most powerful nation on earth at that time, who can order people's lives to end, has done that countless of times. Jesus says, you only have the authority given to you by God Almighty, not a bit more. You are not really in charge. God is. Now, with these three foundational truths established, I want us to turn to the little bit more detailed points and where the application for us is going to become really clear this morning. This one's a little bit longer. Number four, governmental authority is designed by God to restrain evil, punish crimes, and work to cultivate peace and order among people. I want us to get this right in terms of understanding what is government supposed to be doing? What is the purpose of government as God? We said he has created it, he has established it, he appoints rulers into these positions. What is the purpose of all that? What are they supposed to do? 
Here is how we need to understand this. In light of what we said before, we want to believe that governments are good things given by God when they operate properly, and we need to understand what properly operating in their sphere of authority would look like. Ultimately, as I said, it comes from God's common grace in response to man's sinfulness that he has chosen not to simply destroy us or let us destroy ourselves by following all of the evil passions of our hearts unrestrained. The very idea of the law, the very idea of restraining evil through rules and regulations, the law itself, comes from God, not from humanity. This wasn't a self-preservation idea for us. This was a gracious act of God to give us this very concept. And you see it at the very beginning of the Bible in the Garden of Eden at creation, right? God gives a law, a command. Do not do this. And he warns, this is what happens if you violate the law. And of course, Adam and Eve, with just one law to follow, break it. And violating that sin and evil and disobedience enters into the world and enters into human nature from that moment on. But we see God's common grace wasn't just at the beginning to say, here's this law, this rule, the consequence of it. I'm going to give it to you one time. Well, you broke it. Okay, you're on your own. God continues to demonstrate this outpouring of his kindness and his mercy towards humanity in general by continuing to give laws and guidance to mankind. So just as, as one example, you can see in Genesis 9, 6, God establishes the law to say that anyone who would kill another human being, murder another human being, is worthy of death. He prohibits the, the killing of other human beings and prescribes a punishment for those who commit that sin. And he does that as a gift of common grace. So that all men everywhere would know this is wrong. This is requiring a punishment. And the restraint that that produces allows for societies to thrive, right? Allows for you and I to live together. That when you're mad at me, you don't come and murder me and thus I exist no more. Why? Because there's a restraining effect of God's common grace. Otherwise, we wouldn't have nearly as many people on this earth as we have today, right? <laughs> so we need to further understand governments exist because of the sinfulness of mankind, these are temporary things. All governments, no matter how great your form of government that you prefer is, it's only a temporary thing. It exists because of God's common grace for the purpose of restraining evil, punishing crimes, and cultivating peace and order among people. There will not be Congress. There will not be presidents. There will not be kings in eternity. These are temporary things that will pass away. This specific limited purpose of government operating within its sphere is conveyed to us there in that text we read at the beginning, Romans chapter 13. Look there at verses 3 to 5. Here's what God says about the purpose of why this organization of government, this sphere of authority exists. He says, for rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. So the question is, what is government to do? The text answers the question by says the government is to bear the sword for our good by punishing the wrongdoer. This is part of God's restraining work in the world to hold back the evil that exists in all of our hearts from coming out in all of the most extreme ways by us knowing there's consequences for our evils. There's punishment, there's wrath that will be poured out if we take certain actions, right? 
Peter is likewise very clear in a parallel passage in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 13 and 14. He tells us, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to the governor sent by him to punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. This is the mandate for the sphere of authority to be used by the government is that they are to punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. And because of that mandate, when government operates in that way, in that sphere, both Paul and Peter are telling us we should obey the government, obey the laws, do what is right and good, and we should have nothing to fear from our governments when we do that. Because their purpose, created by God, is to restrain evil, punish those who do wrong, celebrate what is good. And if that's true, then if we do what is good, we should be celebrated, not punished by our governments, right? That's the intent of God. But here we must be really clear on what is good and what is evil. And who gets to define what is good and what is evil. Because against what our culture and our governments today think and do, they do not actually get to define good and evil. Only God himself does. And has. Look, we should all recognize every government is fallible and rebellious against God and his rules. We see very clearly in our days, so many of the governments of our world are in abject rebellion against God in what we've already looked at in this series, right? As they celebrate and declare these acts of rebellion to be good things in such things as the trans movement, right? The embracing of homosexuality and bisexuality, the profaning of marriage, the acceptance of adultery, the toleration of violence and riots and destruction and murder, the embracing of ungodly destructive worldviews like critical race theory and intersectionality, Government will say to us today, these are good things. We support these things. God would say these are evil things. And when God says something is evil and the government says something is good, we must recognize the fallible one here is our government. Any government. When governments then do evil things, when they try to redefine good and evil against what God has said, we need to be clear, they're rebelling against God. And they're in sin. And God will judge that. All throughout history, God has judged nations and rulers of nations. He has destroyed nations, raised up new nations, held men accountable for their rebellion against him. That continues to this day and will continue until eternity. So hear me clearly. No government, no leader, no political group are ultimate or eternal. So we must not live like they are. We must not center our lives, much less our theologies, around these temporal, lesser things but more on that in just a moment because it leads us right into our next point. We are called to submit to governments and the governmental authority that is given by God operating within its sphere when they are punishing evil and celebrating what is good as God defines those things. But we do need to understand clearly point five is this. Christians must submit to God's authority primarily and defy governments when they rebel and contradict him. When a government operates outside of its sphere, by trying to redefine what is good and evil, we must resist that. And we must stand firm on what God has said. This is why we've talked about we've talked about in weeks two and three of this series. No matter what the government says is good and should be celebrated and protected by its power and its authority, as they do claiming that the trans movement is good, the sins of sexual deviation are acceptable, you and I must stand firm on not their definitions of good and evil, but God's definitions of good and evil. Likewise, when a government usurps the authority of another sphere that God has created, we must resist that overreach. 
For example, when the government tries to encroach upon the sphere of the family, Christians should resist that. Children do not belong to the state or to the federal government. They belong to their families. So how we raise our kids, what we train them in, how we instruct them in religious beliefs, those matters are family matters, not governmental ones. Christians have an obligation to defy governments when they command disobedience to God or when they try to prevent our obedience to God. So, for the church, when the government begins to encroach upon the sphere of the church's authority, we should resist that. The church is a separate sphere of authority from government. It is not under the authority of the government. It is a distinct sphere from the government, under the direct authority of God himself. That's what we looked at last week, right? This is how it all fits into our, our series here. We saw clearly from the text of Scripture, Jesus Christ is the head of the church. He is the one who has built it. He is the one who commands it. He is the one who owns it, not the government, Christ. He is our head. So when the government overreaches to this sphere, the church sphere, and tells Christians things like, hey, you cannot gather together anymore. The church must defy them. Now, it's amazing to me that believers understood this so much better before COVID-19 than we do after COVID-19, right? Because we would celebrate and we would know how good and right it was for the church in China or Iran or in any other place where the government was so hostile to the faith that they said, you cannot gather, and the church would defy them and gather anyway. We would celebrate that, right? But we're not seeing that same celebration and that same commitment and that same resolve in many Western countries today. Now, we're not, aside from liberals who are really not Christians at all, we're not making the argument that Romans 13 or 1 Peter 2 are saying that we need to submit to tyranny in the government. Some, some would argue that. Whatever the government says, just do it, right? That's the initial thing we started with. We as Christians would not believe that, but Many Christians who would affirm the Bible says there is a time to defy the government, there is a time to push back, don't seem to think we're in that time right now. And that should be of concern to us. So I, I want to explain, this is why when, when COVID-19 hit and we began to do the things we began to do as a church, I never once, you can go back and listen to every message I did, you can read every letter that I published at the time, I never once used Romans 13 as the basis for what we were doing. My argument was never that the government has said to do something, we must submit to the government, so we're just doing whatever they have said. <laughs> That's fine, didn't break. In everything that I published, every letter that I put out, every live stream that I did, I tried to make very clear it was the church's leadership that had decided to take the course of actions that we were taking. So I said up front, we have chosen to abide by what the government was asking us to do at that time. We were trying to study the data. We were trying to understand the threat. We were trying to live in love for our communities with what was being told to us at that point across all the cultures. This is the most deadly thing we've seen in generations, right? Two million people will be dead this time next week. And we tried our best to, to respond to that and learn and see what was going on. But what we weren't doing was just saying, well, the government has complete authority. Their authority extends over every other sphere of life. And whatever they say, we just, we just obey. I understood very, very clearly, even at that time, the government has a sphere of authority, the church has a sphere of authority, and if they try to overreach into this sphere and we let them do that, we ourselves are in disobedience to God. They do not have the authority to do that. So we made our choices. 
And when it became clear to us, as it certainly is now, that it was safe for us to gather and some of the things we were being told were not true, that it was for us, we understood now to be most loving for our communities, that we would obey Christ. We would resume gathering and worshiping and proclaiming the gospel as we are doing now. That's what we've done. That's what we will continue to do. So when the government overreaches into this sphere and commands Christians do not gather, Christians should push back on that. But we should push back on more than just that. For some, that's the baseline. As long as we're allowed to gather, whatever other restrictions the government would impose, well, we'll, we'll, we'll put up with those. That's not right either. If the government says, well, you can gather, but you cannot have close contact with one another, you must wear a mask, you cannot touch one another, you must not get close to one another, you need to limit your attendance and not let certain people into your building, you can't sing together and you can't take communion, which are all restrictions the government has tried to put in place, has put in place in our own country and is still in place in places around the country. When the government says any of that stuff, the church has an obligation to defy them. Again, I think we understood things a lot better before COVID-19 hit because so many churches now seem tolerant of these overreaches of the government's authority from their sphere into our sphere. The government has no right to determine the worship of God or how we obey the commands of Christ given to us in Scripture. And we know clearly, as we even talked about just last week, right, there are things God commands us to do that should guide what we do. He tells us to gather. He tells us to have contact with one another, to sing to him when we come together, to take the Lord's Supper together. We cannot let the government define our worship of God. Only he has the right to do that. So we need to be resolved, we need to be clear, we need to know these words from the New Testament that were spoken when the governmental powers of that day, the Jewish Sanhedrin ordered the apostles Peter and John to stop preaching in the name of Christ. What did they say to them? Acts 5.29, Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than man. They understood clearly God's authority is higher and our allegiance to him is greater. So our obedience to lesser authorities is real. And when they are within their sphere, we obey, submit willingly, gladly. But when they overreach, when they move out of their sphere, when they command disobedience or try to prohibit our obedience to God, we say we must obey God rather than men. So again, this does not mean that we have license to live however we want and never submit to the government in things we don't like. That's not what this is about. This is about the clear commands of Scripture being obeyed by God's people, right? You have to obey the government when it operates rightly within its sphere. That's not always things we like or agree with. So in this very passage in Romans 13, Paul gives us a very specific application that shows you may not like what the government has the right to do, but you do need to submit to that when they're within their sphere. Look at verses 5 to 7. Paul's echoing the words of Jesus himself and says, Therefore, one must be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. Now, let's be honest in this room this morning. Most of us don't like paying taxes, right? <laughs> That's the most, most engaged you are right now, this whole message. Amen. Don't like my taxes. But here's the reality, makes very clear in the scripture. This is the, within the right authority of the government. This is within their sphere. And so what are we called to do? Submit, obey, pay our taxes. Can we work hard and can we pray and try to engage the process to get a better tax system in place? 
Can we try to guide how those tax monies are spent in our form of government? Yes, absolutely. Those are good things to do. If we have the freedom and ability to do it, we should engage in those processes to do it. But this command given to us of pay your taxes was given to God's people in a context of extreme taxation used to fund a government that was not at all aligned with biblical principles or morality, and there was no opportunity to engage that. God's people at this time did not have any political clout to go and say, you know, we really don't want to pay all this exorbitant taxes so your soldiers can be here. They said, shut up and pay your taxes. And still the command is obey the government in this way. Render honor to whom honor is due. But when the government oversteps their sphere of proper authority, we need to understand clearly God's people must obey God rather than men. So when the government tries to step in and restrict our ability to worship God or obey him, as many governments are doing using COVID-19 as their justification, God's people must stand firm, defy them, and pay whatever price is required for us to pay to remain faithful to God. It meant physical beatings for the apostles who said those words. They suffered to remain faithful to God rather than to obey the unjust order of the government given to them. So we must understand, governments have limited authority, and when they violate the limits of their authority, they themselves are sinning against God. And we have a right, a right and a responsibility to be clear on that, to say that, and to submit to God rather than the sinfulness of our governments. Which leads us to our last point. And this is going to be another one that I think may press in a little bit on some of us, because so many people in a free society like ours in America, with all the benefits that we have, and especially in this part of the country where there's an implicit messaging that's been sent to almost all of us in this modern age, there's something else the Bible makes really clear that we need to be on guard against. It's this. Number six, Christians must not fall into the trap of seeking salvation in the state or rescue by rulers. We really need to guard our hearts and minds against this because this is an innate temptation for all of humanity, no matter where we live and what age we live in. You can see that clearly going into the Bible back to when Israel itself wanted a king instead of God's rule to be over them direct. Right? The people come to Samuel, the prophet, and say to him in 1 Samuel chapter 8, verse 5, appoint for us a king like all the other nations. We see these other forms of government. We see these other things going on. We want to be like them. And Samuel's upset. He knows this is not a good thing. He knows it won't go well for them. But he prays to God, and God's response in verse 7 is this. And Yahweh said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you. They have rejected me from being king over them. So God says he will allow for them to have a king. But he tells them, here's what else I want you to tell them, Samuel. I want you to warn them of what will take place. Because you desire to have a ruler over you who can rescue you from danger that you face physically, the king that can be seen and appreciated by you, and he can serve as your human savior and fight your battles for you, all the things they're asking for there. In verses 10 to 18, he tells them how this king, because he is a sinful man, will take from the people. He will gather to himself and his government powers and resources, and eventually he will rule over the people as his subjects, his slaves instead of serving them and working for their good in all things. This is what will take place. God warns the people. And that happens in Israel, and that happens in every single government that has ever existed on the face of the earth, because every government is led by sinful people. Everyone. Some models are better. Some models are more aligned with biblical principles. Some models have checks and balances in them to help restrain the evil of those sinful rulers. Some do not. 
But no matter which government it is upon the face of the earth, it's still led by sinful people. Governments grow and expand and collect power and privilege for themselves. And right now we can see they don't like to give that up very easily, right? It's true in every government, in every culture, in all of history. It's true here now, too. Look at the elites. Look at the government officials who are repeatedly shown today in our modern era right now to be self-serving, self-enriching, and hypocritical. And be honest, that's on both sides, all sides of the political spectrum. It's a result of all governments being led by sinful people. But despite that reality and despite this clear warning that we have in Scripture, people, even Christians, still today think and hope that the governmental leaders are the ones who can save them and rescue them from the problems that we face. That's why every politician promises this. No matter what slogan they create, whatever marketing you know, text they come up with, it all really just means the exact same thing. Elect me, and I will save you in this state or this country from whatever thing it is you're worried about. <laughs> I'll rescue you and your loved ones and your things from these threats that are on the horizon or these threats I tell you are on the horizon, right? It's this promise. I will be your deliverer. I will be your savior. So choose me. Trust me. So not only are we tempted to think this naturally as the people of Israel were, but we're being sold this every single election that we come to. This is what we're told. But Christians, we need to be wiser than that. We need to stop seeking salvation in the state and rescue by rulers and understand the real problem in our world today is the same problem that's always been in the world since the Garden of Eden. It's sin. And no government run by sinners can save anyone from that. In fact, the Bible tells us that pretty plainly. Acts chapter 4, verse 12, just as an example, there is no salvation, there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Rather than trusting in government, the rulers of whatever nation we have our physical citizenship with right now, Christians are told to know in Philippians chapter 3, verse 20, our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Christians, we need to keep our priorities straight and our focus clear. There is no Savior other than Jesus Christ. There is no ruler who can be elected that will solve all the issues that we face. Should we pray for and vote for godly leaders? Yes, we should. Should we call on the government to act righteously? Should we work to see biblical morality upheld? Yes. Should we support the creation of just laws and work to see the overturning of unjust, immoral laws? Yes. But we should not fall into the temptation to believe that any sinner elected to government, any ruler who comes into office, can save from sin and the effects of sin in our society. We're putting on them a responsibility they cannot fulfill, hopes they cannot meet. We have one Savior whom we need to trust. We have one God who has all authority over all things. We have one solution to sin and the effects of sin in our culture, the gospel of Jesus Christ. So you and I have one message that needs to be primary in our lives. We have one thing that we need to spend our days meditating on, understanding, and proclaiming. One thing that needs to be central to how we think and how we act. And it's not political. It's gospel. We need to rightly understand the role of government. We need to know the government's purpose. We need to know the sphere of its authority so that we can rightly obey the word of God and submit to that authority within its sphere. 
But we also need to understand the sphere of the church's authority and the responsibility upon us too. We need to understand the sphere of the family and our responsibility in our own families, what we're called to do there. But most important above all things is we need to recognize God's ultimate authority. And our allegiance is to him above all and in all other spheres. Listen to how Peter concludes his passage. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 15 to 17. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Christians should be people who live freely, using our freedom to do good, to serve and to glorify God. And we should give honor and submission and obedience to the government in its sphere. We're not called to be revolutionaries for the sake of revolution. But we are, most importantly, above everything else, called to fear and worship and obey God and our full allegiance is to him, no matter the cost, in all things. Those words from Acts 5.29, we must obey God rather than men. Why? Because the text we've come back to at the start of so many of these sermons in this series in Matthew 28, we know Jesus came and said to his disciples, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Worship team, if you'll come this morning, they're going to lead us in a final song of response. And, and here's the key point. It's all put together. Like I said, I'll give you one kind of summation. Here it is. It's a, a paragraph for you. God has created and established governments with a limited authority to serve mankind by restraining evil and cultivating good. Christians are commanded to submit to this authority in its sphere, but we must always recognize God's authority as ultimate. We must obey the one true king and look to Christ the Savior above all. That's what we need to take away from this. Now this morning, as we go to respond... Let's humble ourselves and be honest with our hearts. There are some areas where our thinking has not been right. Our behavior has been different. And we need to repent and we need to submit to God, his authority, meditate on his commands, and seek to apply them in our lives. We need to ask him to strengthen us and enable us to live righteously and obediently to him in how we think and act in all spheres of our life upon this earth. We're going to sing and take a few minutes to pray, and we have one final thing to do before we dismiss this morning. So let's make the most of these moments. The altars are open. I'd love to pray with you. Of course, you're welcome to do that where you are. The Lord hears your prayers right where you are. But let's take this opportunity to respond to God this morning, and then we'll come back together and we'll close out the service in a moment. Be seated for just a moment. As we conclude our service this morning, we have the great opportunity to celebrate God's goodness to our church, his love for us, and his intention to work through us. This morning we celebrate that our church membership is again growing because God is at work here among us. I've shared with you this many times before, but I'll put it before you once again. Church membership is a covenant made between a local church and a Christian with the church committing to spiritual oversight, discipleship, and care for the Christian, and the Christian committing to serving, submitting to, and investing in the local church and its mission. This morning we have the joy of celebrating new membership commitments being made here by some who are, are familiar to us, for sure. 
if uh, Jackie and Rodney Teeman would come and Randy Plunkett would come this morning to the front, they're going to stand before this church body making this commitment, this covenant to join with this church as active members participating in the mission that God has called us to. That mission is to make disciples who are growing together in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ and are proclaiming his gospel and glory as their personal mission, our personal mission this morning. Amen? So they're committing themselves to following and submitting to the spiritual leadership of this church and to personally committing to pray for and support and be involved with gathering and serving in this local church. As I read each time we talk about this in membership, membership is a way for us to formally identify with a local church gathering and to the spiritual oversight of a local pastor, something we're all commanded to do in Scripture. And as people who recognize God's authority, we want to submit our lives to his authority. So Hebrews 13, 17 tells us, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. <laughs> this commitment, this, this membership move is a benefit to those of us who step into that. So this morning, I make a commitment to them as the pastor that God has ordained and placed here to care for their souls, to live out the calling God has given to me in 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 2 and 3, which tell me to shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being an example to the flock. Finally, church family, as they make a commitment and I make a commitment this morning, you, the current members of Nelsonville Assembly who are here, will likewise make a commitment to Jackie and to Rodney and to Randy. As a local church, it's our part to provide for discipleship and care and love and investment in these lives, to commit ourselves to the hard work that it is, to be involved with one another in a biblical way. So this morning, we read from the words of Jesus himself in John chapter 13, verses 34 and 35, which tell us, love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. And by this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. So if you're a member of this church this morning, would you stand with me as we accept them into this body and then we pray over them this morning? Praise God. If you're not a member, you can join us in standing this morning. And let's pray for God's blessing over them and over this church body as a whole. Father, I thank you for your great love and mercy. I thank you for your power that is at work in this place. It has been at work in this place for nearly 100 years now. And many lives have been brought here to be a part of seeing the kingdom expand and grow as you continue your work of saving the lost. And today we stand here as part, this latest part of your work in this place through this church body and we thank you for the new members who you are bringing into this group. We thank you for Rodney and for Jackie and for Randy. And this morning, I pray, Lord, that your blessings would rest upon them. I pray that your power would come upon us in such a way, Lord, that we would feel that you are with us. You are leading us. The things you would have us do, Lord, would be clear and evident to us. Father, we thank you for the blessings that they have been as they have joined with us for so long, worshiped with us for so long, been a part of the work even for so long. Lord, now as we stand here today, may it be a fresh outpouring of the power of your spirit in each one of these lives and each one of us, that your love, your power would flow through us so that the mission would be accomplished in a greater way than it ever has been before in these communities you have placed us in. 
Father, I thank you for each one of these. I thank you for each member who stood this morning to welcome them into this church body and the commitment that has been made by them, by myself, and by this church, Lord, that we will be on the mission you have entrusted to us together with one another, loving one another as you have called us to do. We thank you for this great day that you've given us, this great celebration that you have given us today. May it be the highlight of our day, of our week, Lord as we celebrate your love for us, your power and work among us. It's in your beautiful, powerful name we pray, Lord Jesus. And everyone said, amen. Amen.